podcast to honor the gods. This better come with a sacrifice. Dave X Media. Contend Capable acknowledges the indigenous people on the land on which we record this podcast, the Tarongorong people. We offer our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Content and Capable. Uh, my name's Sam, and I'm joined this week with Amanda uh, from the account uh, Matter of Fact. Um, Amanda, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's really fun to be here. For those who might not know you and your amazing work, do you want to just give a quick brief of, of what you do on the internet? Sure. Um, I provide commentary on pretty much all things royal related um, with a focus on the British royal family because they're what trends most often. But anything from news to fashion, gossip, drama, uh, it's nothing's off limits. Uh, And I try to keep my focus really intersectional. So we talk about everything, the good, the bad and the ugly. I really love when people like people start off saying I analyze intersectionally because I'm like, wow, we get to have a really nuanced conversation <laughs> right now. <laughs> That's what I always I'm trying. I'm really trying to do it. Uh, royal commentating with nuance is hard. Uh, but <sighs> I from day one, I've been very clear, like it's my opinion and I'm not going to mm. compromise that. So I work as a journalist and like by a by like by its nature it's supposed to be intersectional and trying to distill you know uh, 7000 different opinions into 300 words is often a little little hard <laughs> oh my gosh yeah um, and i like uh, i my heart goes out to you because i am very oh, clear look. i'm not a journalist because i just know i could never take it to that level it's fascinating because there is a level of content creation that brushes on journalism like yours. Mm. Um, and I can think of other creators, especially here in Australia, that do uh, similar kinds of content creation, more around the political sphere and bits and pieces. And some will claim to be journalists and some will make it really clear that they're not journalists. And then some will play either card, depending on what they what kind of reaction they want. And it really makes me angry. I just wish everyone could make the same decision. Yeah. And I, I mean, I get, I do get like trying to, it's, it's a tough line to walk and uh, like to balance everything. Cause for me, when, yeah, a lot of news about the Royals is coming out, maybe when a monarch has passed away or celebrated mm-hmm. a, a Jubilee or is going to get crowned. I think I do naturally tend to adopt that more fact giving kind of part of content creating but then in the downtime in between those big big milestones where the world is like paying attention i'm gonna talk about drama i'm gonna gossip like and that's the beauty of being a content creator and not a reporter not somebody who has to stick to you know (laughs) journalistic standards as it were I think it's the Achilles heel, the Achilles heel of like the Royal Rota, right? Oh Where, gosh. um, and I've I've spoken about this at length, uh, in response to the way that J.K. Rowling writes, um, in terms of, and obviously there's a whole set of opinions that I won't delve into because that's that's for another podcast. <laughs> but um, I've been ge- I've guested on Harry Potter podcasts where we talk about like. Ooh, are you okay? <laughs> Sorry, my lamp is flickering. I don't know. Okay. That could happen again. I, Sorry about that. No, it's, uh, but it's very fascinating because the Royal Rotor exists and it's something that like is legitimate and it is consumed. And there isn't like, not, not every day legitimate? the Royals are doing something. Well, it's considered legitimate in... <laughs> Theoretically, in the they're, eyes. they are so their own entity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like the way that like an author who grew up in, or who spent a lot of time writing during that time, i.e., someone like J.K. Rowling writes, is very similar. It becomes quite like sensationally mm. sensationalized, and you see influences like um, the character of Rita Skeeter really, mm. to me, represents the Royal Rota because she's there for scandal. Um, and she makes her like living off of off other people's suffering. Uh, and it is so fascinating to to see, you know, it's it's way more pervasive than we we give it credit for. 
Oh, absolutely. I actually had a follower make that comparison one day and I said, yeah, absolutely. That's 100% what's happening here where uh, it's actually a topic right now just in content creating in general that polarization is what performs and mm. there's always going to be that that push to drive people to one extreme or the other and cover something from a black or a white, you know, there's not a lot of room to have that gray area. And people, I think in consuming content are really tempted to, to pigeonhole you onto one side or the other when that's just not how life works. No. Yeah, it is. And it's like trying to make it clear that you're impartial while still, you know, enjoying the drama (laughs) or, you know, engaging with things like that is, I, I wouldn't wish that job on anyone, and yet you have it. You, you because it it is it is so tempting, even like even for myself to go. Let's just sensationalize this a little bit. Yeah. Um. I had that this week. I had a there's a there was a couple of jumps outside of a mountain bike park that were demolished by council, and everyone was up in arms about it. I'm like, great, awesome, and I was like, I don't really believe you. And then I got played into the whole drama. Yeah. And then I like had to take a step back. I was as I was like rewriting the article for the third time and going, I need to step out yeah, of the drama yeah. and just write this. Like, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I um, if you I love drama, uh, so I do too. And this literally happened yesterday, which is why I'm going to bring it up. Basically, Kate Middleton, Princess of Wales, wore mm-hmm. a coat. I don't know how tuned into royal news you are <laughs> if you followed this. She wore a coat that was almost identical to one she owned before. Um, but, like, it, it was clearly a new coat. It, like, for a while, we yeah. were all confused. And we thought, like, maybe she changed it. She altered it. Uh, but no, it was new. So I got really sucked into that drama. And, like, why does she need a new coat that looks exactly the same as this other one? Like, what is she trying to do? Are they trying to trick us? Um, is there a deeper meaning here? And I did end up making, like, two videos on it. Uh, and I had a bunch of people saying like, oh, there's so many more important things happening in the world and this is what you choose to focus on. And so I took that step back and I said, okay, fine. And then today I posted a video. It was about um, the king meeting with uh, President Zelensky at the palace. Yeah. You know what didn't perform as well as the cope video? The video about the president of Ukraine, <laughs> right? So <Yeah. laughs> it's a never ending cycle is I, what I'm learning. You, you can't, like, ever please everyone. And as a people pleaser myself, I hate it. I hate people getting... My editor complained. He said he, he reckons every day this week he got a phone call with someone who was mildly abusive because they were upset by something in the paper. You know, a, a small town, regional Australian paper that <laughs> isn't too controversial. It's been running for, like, a hundred and something years. Like, yeah. I think a hundred and... Oh, long, long, long time. Anyway, um, and everyone's like up in arms, and we we all joke this because people don't have any time, like any, any, like they've got all this spare time, so they don't know mm-hmm. what to do with themselves. But also, it's also your downtime, and I just wish that like sometimes people consume content for content. May I ask, was that Coke video? Like, I haven't seen the video, <laughs> the video that you made yesterday, but. Was that video like a part of the whole green coat stuff that um, (laughs) you were talking about the other week? So I tied it into it. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is a woman who owns 18 green coats, many of which are identical, (laughs) but slightly different. And I said, like, why? I just I just want to know why. And so, yeah, it it is all related. Um, And, you know, it's something that makes sense in my own brain because I'm thinking about this constantly as the content creator. And I need to remind myself there might be people who are just dropping in or seeing my content Mm. standing on its own and don't know that bigger picture or keep up with it in the same way. I know there are people that follow me in that way. They're they're following really closely, but they're also just casual watchers. So it is hard to balance, like, just Mm. what everyone expects from you. Were you always into royal watching? Was that something that you always like, always liked doing before creating content on the internet? Sure. So I'll be honest, I I didn't consider myself a royal watcher for I mean until I started creating content. Even after I started making videos, I was like, I'm not a royal watcher. I just find them fascinating. Um, but looking back now, I know my mom always had this interest in Princess Diana. We watched the royal weddings together, like that was always a piece of my understanding of, I don't want to say pop culture, but like 
world mm. culture. Um, so I've always kind of had this working knowledge of them. And I also love history and art. And so you wrap it all up into one and it just makes for a really interesting kind of thing to tune into um, with the royals. So yeah, more more, yeah. more than me being a royal watcher, it was me having a lot of thoughts and, and being fascinated by them as part of history that is like still being written. It is really fascinating because it is something that like is so rooted in tradition. So it feels old in a very modern, like, like we're in the 21st century, everyone. <laughs> We've got little black boxes that you can, you know, you have the whole world at your fingertips from there. And, you know, you can speak to people on the other side of the world, no problem. And, you know, nothing. And yet, you know, everyone will tune in on their televisions mm-hmm. to watch, you know, two white people (laughs) like two white people get married in this really really old church in london Mm -hmm. uh because because that's the thing that we're obsessed with and like i have to acknowledge that australia is a part of the commonwealth and we are just as royal obsessed as a lot of people are Mm -hmm. and it is our head of state like it is a matter of national significance to be a part of like and it is it's really fascinating people being obsessed with all this stuff oh yeah and i think the the way that media has changed like the news cycle is never ending now has really changed the way that the royal family has to operate and so like i'm also fascinated by that aspect of it not just the the gowns and the jewels and the ceremony but also what are they gonna do next like because they clearly can't Mm. keep operating as they have in the past like that's just a fact so I, I just, yeah, now that I'm tuned into it, I can't look away. It's fascinating. What are they going to do next seems to be a question everyone asks mm-hmm. about everyone. Like, of all things, I'm around the corner from the school in Australia that King Charles transfer, uh, went on exchange oh, to. Yeah. Uh, um, and the principal of Gorsedon is in Australia as as we speak. Uh, and I, I got a chance to speak to her, which was amazing. Um but it was so fascinating to hear someone who lives within geographical like proximity to the royal family mm-hmm. and you know has those quite deep royal connections whereas myself I'm some joe blow from <laughs> australia that has never met anyone from the royal household um never really not that I've never really cared for it like I understand its importance but never really was like super invested in it getting to speak to these people and it is a completely different yeah. like mindset yes. and you don't you don't get to see the 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 whole tradition and and bits and pieces but then also like because this is an educational institution that I was speaking to we've got to look to the future and how can we how can we adapt to the future but tradition but tradition mm-hmm. very very fascinating yeah it is it's just they speak another language they have this this worldview that if you didn't grow up in that it's really hard to to penetrate it later on um, because it's all just things that are understood mm. about the way the world should work or, or does work um yeah it's Again, even from the outside mm. looking in, like, I live in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Like, they don't know who I am. They never will, probably. But uh, it, yeah. it's still, it feels like it is something that's significant. And I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it is such a, a... And the other thing I always find fascinating is that they always have such a touch on the way... They know how people are going to react to something. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, they've got a, such a mastery of the human like kind of psyche in terms of you know we know you know we know by the color of kate's dress (laughs) how people are going to react to the announcement that's going to be made in two weeks time you know it's this whole game of 4d chess while we're sitting here you know trying to figure out how to draw a straight line on a piece of paper (laughs) (laughs) yeah no game of thrones right like it is this it's yeah it's become a pr strategy like wet dream almost (laughs) because you can you can almost formulate some of the things that they're going to do and if you are tuned into it, very rarely are there big, big surprises. But we, again, can't look away. Yeah. No, no. It, and it's, it reminds me of like, this is very Australian of me, but like Married at First Sight is a TV <laughs> show. I don't know whether it, it exists outside of Australia. It does. It's this whole, I don't, it does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. We, Australians are obsessed with maths and it's running at the moment. Um, and we, it, it reminds me of maths. Like you're sitting here watching these people 
do these absolutely ridiculous things, being in couples that they or couplings that they don't necessarily a hundred percent want to be. Like obviously it's family, like you've got to kind of deal with it. And then watching the the shit kind of hit the fet proverbial fan <laughs> all at once. Especially in the last few months with Harry and Meghan just yeah. going, we're going to go on our own and do our own thing. Yeah. And w- <laughs> the royal family having to react to the fact that they don't have like intimate access to mm-hmm. exactly what Harry and Meghan are thinking and planning. It's been very fascinating Oh my gosh, to watch. yeah. Well, and people get mad when you compare the royal families, not just to celebrities, but the comparison has been made to the Kardashians because it's the same thing. We want to sit mm-hmm. at home and consume everything that they're doing and dissect it and analyze it. And I don't watch Married at First Sight, but I also watch The Bachelor. And it's the same thing there, too. We like to have this almost like a cinematic universe where we can go where these conversations happen. They don't matter yeah. outside of that sphere. But inside of that that realm of content, they matter so much. It, it doesn't matter if it's the color of somebody's shoes or whether they closed their own car door like Megan did and set off a firestorm on Twitter. It doesn't matter. It, yeah. it It's all significant in its own little way. And, ugh, man. <laughs> and it's fascinating to see the role of social media take a really important, like, like, step into the limelight at the moment as well. Obviously, you've just mentioned Twitter and... <laughs> Look, I'd love to not be able to speak about Twitter every every week on this podcast, but it always ends up coming back. But also, you know, um, you know the the fact that Instagram has become a way more democratic place mm. where we can add a little bit more nuance, not as much nuance as I don't know, say a a very in depth book about you know the light, you know, you, uh, analyzing stuff mm-hmm. like. But at the same time, we are we are getting this really interesting insight at the moment to people's live reactions mm-hmm. to the way the royals operate, and it's fascinating. I really am enjoying it. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad. And I'm I'm like, I had this thought last night. Like, what am I doing? I'm part of this. I'm not just like in the conversation. I know now that I'm driving the conversation for some people, and that's really really trippy to think about honestly like if i'm being 100 percent here um but it, it it's it's crazy and i'm not on twitter anymore i just no uh mm. <laughs> but it, it it does make you think <laughs> like when you're trying to have these conversations in a productive way there's a temptation to create an echo chamber for yourself as well especially when it comes to social media so drawing that line trying to have these conversations and absorb this piece of culture and history without falling prey to that it's yeah it's very tricky yeah it's um it's not something i wish on anyone i don't know when you when your content online started attracting a significant number of viewers what was your kind of initial reaction (laughs) um I mean, it was pretty, I don't want to say overnight for me, because it took about a month for me to like gain a traction, gain, gain a foothold, get some traction. Um, but it was the first video I posted. Um, people, it went, I mean, you can say it went viral on TikTok. I got like 3 million views in a day. Um, and it was exactly that starting conversation about, it was the Harry and Meghan interview on Oprah. Um, so just that thought of, mm-hmm. oh, I have something to say that A, people want to listen to and B, they want to engage with. So that was a big part of it for me was just yeah. learning that I have a voice and it, yeah, is insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but there is a space for it. And there's a space that it is. it was at the time saying things that no one else was the saying. It was starting those conversations in a way that didn't end up turning into like firefights on Twitter. It's, it's very easy to turn something into a firefight on Twitter. I've I've watched more than one thing I've said decide to blow up in my face. Um, I don't know how do you like how do you decide what is good engagement and bad engagement. Obviously, the line between like a debate and name calling mm-hmm. gets quite fine from time to time. How how do you how do you define what is good and bad on your platform? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I, at this point, you know, I've been doing content for over, no, almost two years. Um, and at this point, I just have a policy, like a, a comment policy. 
uh, where, yeah, I reserve the right to block you if you're going to start name calling and making the conversation not about the issue at hand. Um, but that's something I had to grow into and learn that it was okay to to draw those boundaries. And it also helps that I have a built in audience now that I'm not trying to grow. Like I've I've reached the point where I'm like, I'm content. I know my people and I know who's not my people. I've gotten really good at spotting it. And that goes back to what I said about it's very tempting to create an echo chamber. And that's not what I want to do. But I do want it to be a place where those conversations are safe for people who who want to engage with them. So it's a fine line for sure. Have you found it like hard to present obviously you know you as you said you've been really trying to avoid creating an echo chamber but present alternating and and differing opinions on what's going on have you found it hard to to be able to do that and and remain you know moving forward like we're not just going back into the same set of arguments we've always had (laughs) yeah i do struggle with that and it's because uh I'm a very opinionated person and I, when I have an opinion, stick to it really, really tightly. Um, and I know there have been times where I haven't gotten it completely right and I could have entertained quote unquote the other side, but there are a lot of instances where the other side is just rooted in intolerance and that's what I'm trying to kind of like root out. So yeah, it's, it's tough. And I know like at the end of the day, again, it's all my, it's my opinion. Right. Uh, but I think just acknowledging, Hey, there is another side to this. Here's what, where I stand on that is my way of handling it. Hey, and like, obviously, as you said, you've been doing this for two years. What, um, what were you doing before, <laughs> you know, creating, being, you know, um, the, the resident of what I feel like is the resident expert on, you oh, know, God. how to, how to, how to dissect what's going on in the royal family without sensationalizing it. Um, well, I, first of all, I do not, I hate the term like royal expert. I really hate it because none of us know, right? Like none yeah. of us can know. That's not like on you. I just... I would like to make it clear. I don't think of myself as an expert. Um, But yeah, before that, I uh, was actually working as a museum educator. Um, I had done my graduate degree in museum leadership. uh, And I was working as, (laughs) of all things, a STEM educator. Um, I like to think I'm still kind of using all that education and that background now, just explaining different things to a different group of people in a different setting. Um, But at the end of the day, it's all about starting dialogues and starting conversations. So I have pivoted away from that. Mm -hmm. And I do have a full-time job on top of making my content. Um, I'm a social media manager currently, which is a skill I kind of picked up along the way. (laughs) It's very fascinating. Someone was telling me the other day, I think it might've been on an episode here that you're either a consumer or a creator Mm -hmm. on, especially on like a platform like TikTok. And there's this assumption that like, when you when you need like a social media manager, especially for new platforms like TikTok, you just throw someone from Gen Z on it and like, oh yeah, you know, they'll sort it out. They can do it. Um, yeah. and I, I'm I'm very much like not a social media creator. <laughs> I can do social media publishing, and I'm fairly okay at it. Like I'm not I'm not the and I just don't consider myself quite good enough to do it. Have you like? I don't know. Have there been some lessons from your personal experience that's kind of like transferred into obviously your professional work as a mm-hmm. social media manager? Uh, yes, uh, but it's it's really hard to kind of verbalize it. You know, it's one of those things. I don't want to say you either have it or you don't because mm-hmm. that's not true. But you get a feel for it and you have this point where you just know in your gut, this is going to do well or this isn't going to do well. Um so yeah, just learning, I, I would say what catches people's attention is is so valuable. Um, I might not be able to articulate it in a, like a 10 point plan for somebody, but uh, I like to be able to trust my instincts. And that's a skill that I've grown as I've been doing content. Yeah, it's it's super fascinating. It's not something that like I ever really think of, but you know, people who... Cr- create content on social media it's not necessarily their full-time job and so Mm -hmm. often you know the skills that they have here are also being used in a a corporate setting Mm -hmm. or you know working with a brand or working with a 
a movement of some sort as well. I've I've seen you know a whole bunch of content creators, uh, especially who really really get into like creating content for other brands mm-hmm. and really utilizing their experience and their platform as well to to do that. Carl Pru is the first person that comes to mind mm. with you know his work uh, managing. I don't even know what brand it is. Yeah, I couldn't but tell it's you. It's a social media brand that I. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you the name of the brand. I can tell you the mascot, the, the <laughs> horrifying mascot that I see grace my for you page way too often. <laughs> um, but I, I, and you know, you said you 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 were working in museums. Was the transition from you know working in museums through to social media creation was that a bit of a culture shock for you? You know, going from something a little bit more formalized mm-hmm. and structured to something that's a little bit more free-flowing. Yeah, actually, it's funny because when I made that shift, I went in for an interview at my current job and I was applying for a completely different position. Um, and they looked at my resume and I had like on the side, I think I had it under special skills, like TikTok with this many followers. <laughs> I think it was like 500,000 maybe at the time. And they said, uh, what's uh, what's what's going on yeah. here? Talk to me about this. And I said, oh, well, it's just like this thing that I do. And I explained it. And they said, oh, well, do you want to run our social media? Like, forget everything we just talked about. Do you want to do this instead? And I said, I, I, could, I could have a crack at it. Sure. Um, so it just happened really organically. Um, and a year later, I like I wasn't doing it full time at, at the start, but a year later they said, listen, yeah. we're ready to like bring you on, make you the, I think they call me the marketing director sometimes in their emails. I'm like, oh, that's wow. not, I, I feel bad almost because I never went to school for it. I never trained to do it. Um, I, I literally picked it up as I went. So it the pivot wasn't as hard because it happened kind of step by step almost like little by little and it just Mm. it was where I was at where my job was at and we kind of found this this middle ground it that's so fascinating Mm -hmm. it's like I I've had similar experiences where you know I was actually the job I'm in currently as a journalist um I had applied for the same position at a different office Mm -hmm. and the way that news organizations work here in Australia, and I guess most of the world as well, no matter how regional your paper is, it's owned by somebody else. So the parent company is based where I was applying for, and they turned around and was like, do you want to go and work in Mansfield? <laughs> um, which is the town I live in. And I was like, okay. I, like, I, uh, I'm moving halfway across the country anyway for this job, so a little bit further, never hurt anyone. Sure. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was so fascinating because it does. It's one of those things that, like, you don't really think about it in the moment mm-hmm. and you look back and you go, that was crazy. I could have been, like, <laughs> somewhere totally different. Yeah, and, I mean, for me personally, I that's how I've kind of managed my professional life. I'm 28. Like, up till mm. this point, college, yeah. grad school, jobs, I've just kind of taken it as it comes. And it always kind of seems to fall into place. And I know there's a lot of privilege with that. And a lot of, I have a safety net, you know, I understand that I will be okay at the end of the day, but I'm just kind of here for the ride, honestly. It's also a lot of groundwork. Like you can't have things fall into place easily without having done the hard yards. Like that's, it's not, you know, you can't, you can't get a job without being good at what you do. (laughs) Like I, I, I was reminded of this last year where um, I got a, a promotion. Um, air quotes very promotion. Very heavy air quotes here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not a bad thing. So the promotion I got was I jumped from being a staff journalist to uh, the editor of the short form news department. Unfortunately, the newsroom I worked in was at a community radio station and no one got paid. Mm. No one was being paid whatsoever. Uh, the, the station barely had enough people to pay, uh, enough money to pay the five staff members that already paid, um, let alone, you know, paying wages for journalists who, you know, are desperate for money. So, you know, I picked up this this extra title and it felt... I, I And I still look back and I go, how... On God's green earth, did I get <laughs> yeah. a job? Like, how did I get to that point? Yeah. Running an editor, like running and doing editorial for a newsroom, and I basically ended up at some points, especially when my direct superior wasn't able to work because 
she also needed to earn an income and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I then ended up like taking on extra responsibilities and bits and pieces, which was completely natural and totally fine. Mm -hmm. But try, I was back, I I was speaking to a friend of mine who I was a reference for because I was his direct superior and he has now a higher paying job than I do. He's, he's an extra step up in the journalism pay scheme and I'm a step down. I'm like, I can't believe at one point I was your boss and I was telling you what to do. And now you're a step above me in the career progression and you haven't finished your degree. Mm. And I'm sitting here, you know, my first year out of finishing my journalism degree, sitting on a lower pay level than you. Yeah. It was just wild because it doesn't happen. Like, it's so messy as well. And, you know, the groundwork that people build up is so different yeah. person to person. Yeah, there's not a science to it, which it makes it tough to kind of break into the working world in a lot of ways mm. but you know for me my first job was in a restaurant my second job was in a restaurant <laughs> um, I worked in the college dining hall I worked at the college art gallery because I was I was studying art history and you know along the way those experiences they just add up uh and it it, yeah. it doesn't matter if you've been doing you know if you've been in the field for one year you consider yourself entry level at whatever you're trying to do I guarantee you there are experiences from school past whatever that you will draw on um so yeah it's just uh, man this sounds so privileged of me but i could (laughs) never work hospitality i am not a fast enough person to work hospitality i once got fired on my 18th birthday uh for not being fast enough um (laughs) we had gone to the movies and it was like a separate thing i had some cousins or friends came with us it was the middle of the summer holiday so you know december for us um, and we'd just come out of the movies and I had my phone on me and I turned my phone back on and I'd received an email mm. from my employer and they'd fired me. <laughs> I've always got these really weirdly traumatic fight, like oh stories of being let go from jobs. And basically they'd been telling me I hadn't been fast enough for like the last month, but were refusing to kind of give me the extra training and time to really learn my way around and shifts as well. Like they give me the really high pressure, like high intensity lunch shift or dinner shift. I'm sitting here going, put me on like the lazy morning, like 11 a.m. till 1 p.m., you know, transition shift between breakfast and lunch. Like, no. that's not going to be that busy. Trial by fire. And that way. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, uh, I gave up on hospitality. My mother continuously for the next three or four years tried to convince me to get back into hospitality. I was just like, I've been burnt. It's not and for you. It really hurt my self-confidence because <laughs> we do lots of cooking. My family loves cooking. We love like creating food, but obviously creating food at pace is not my forte. Sure. Um, and remembering, like, I can remember recipes, you know, I made risotto from scratch yesterday, uh, without a recipe, which was dangerous. Don't ever do that. Um, but, uh, I, um, it was like, I don't know. I I just, it's so fascinating to, to know people's like different way histories as well. I think it's a personality thing too. Like, you know, immediately if this is going to jive with you or if it's not, cause I've, yeah. I've never worked retail. That was the one thing I was like, I know I can't mm. do it. I know I can't do it. Uh, to the point where when I graduated, I knew I was going to take a year before I went to grad school. I went home and I, yeah. I was living with my parents for a year and my options were <laughs> go back into food service, which I like didn't really want to do work in retail in my hometown, or I could mm. get trained as a certified nursing assistant and work at um, a nursing home in my hometown. <laughs> and I was my my friend who was going into medical school the next year was like, let's yeah. do it. Do it with me. We'll do it together. And I did it. And I ended up working for a year as a CNA on a dementia unit. I, wow. <laughs> like, dementia units are so much fun. Though. It was like... simultaneously the best and the worst job I've ever had in my life. Right. But it, it's yeah. that hospitality angle is like a big part of it. So now mm. looking back on that I'm like oh it's because I was good at hospitality and restaurants I was also good at this job that depends very heavily on you just having a smiling face and like being amenable and running around like a crazy person trying to get everything done got it so it's yeah yeah the one thing I would the one menial job I would go back to in a heartbeat I hate like it's exhausting for me but I would go back in a heartbeat is customer service Mm. like being on a phone line and telling people they're wrong yeah Greatest feeling in the world. I've done that too. Um, yep. 
It's it's so much fun. And I got to, at the same time, learn employment law, which was so fascinating, uh, learning about employment law and then, like, relaying this the information I learned back to customers. Mm. Uh, it was, like... And just, like, telling them that, no, you can't cite the Nuremberg Code. We've told you <laughs> multiple times to not send a letter saying that your employer is in violation of the Nuremberg Code and that this scientist says this. Uh, <laughs> it just looks like we have to follow the law. The law is not the Geneva Convention. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Oh. Yeah, no, I've answered people, phones. I've I've heard it all. Believe yeah. me. <laughs> you, uh, you've mentioned you've, you have a background in art history. <laughs> Why Why did you want to study art history? <laughs> Great question. Uh, my parents are asking the very same thing probably every day of their lives. Um, uh, no, I, so in, in high school, I was one of the artsy kids, uh, one of the music kids. I played the viola. I did uh, on opposite days for when the orchestra met. I like took my own and like I, I made my schedule work out so I could take an art class that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to fit in because I did half mm. of the workload at home. It was a whole thing. So I was, I've always been in, I, I loved art and I loved creating and painting. Um, I was really, really scared when it came time to pick a career that I wouldn't be able to, I guess, motivate myself enough to make it financially sustainable. So in my little teenage brain, I said, but you know what I could do is study art history. <laughs> uh, and I know now, like, uh, maybe not the, if financial security was my my goal, maybe not the best decision. But I also really love museums. And so my goal was to work yeah. in a museum. And I didn't know if I wanted to educate or curate or hang art on the walls. I think I would have been happy doing any of it. I just loved art and wanted to be around it. Um so I, I ended up going to one of, there's only a, a few schools in the U.S. that offer art history and museum studies. Oh, wow. Not just art history, but yeah. coupled with museum yeah. studies. And I, I picked one of them and I said, that's what I'm going to do. So I, to my credit, did it in a way where I learned a lot of job skills in the process and came out of it ready to work in a museum um, just as the museum industry was crumbling to the ground. So that was fun. <laughs> We love that. Yeah, the best laid um, plans, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, it's very fascinating. I, I swear every kid who played an instrument in high school has a mild panic attack <laughs> at the end of, like, at the end of school about what they do. I played trombone, mm-hmm. and I sat there three months before I finished my, my, high, my high schooling, like, yeah. in general, and still hadn't chosen yeah. what degree I wanted to study or what direction. I was doing physics and chemistry, mm. film and television. Uh, I was doing the h- highest maths I could without taking on an extra subject um, because we don't do, like, you don't do specific sets of maths. You just do all of maths at okay. once. Um, and then on top of that also, I was taking music and music extension, which was an after-school program and was an eighth subject. Everyone, the maximum you could theoretically study was seven. And myself and the girl who got darks in my year level both ended up taking eight subjects um, and dying a little bit on the inside, (laughs) I think. Um, Because neither of us then had the extra time to prepare Mm -hmm. for that class on a Thursday afternoon, which was like an intensive. Um, And so we sat there... And we like looked at each other and went, okay, we'll just show what we've got because really there's very low expectations. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's one of those things where like you, you focus so hard on these, these extracurriculars, right? If you're that kind of person yeah. and then you take a step back and again, you know yourself to some level, you know, you're not a musical prodigy. You're not a narcissistic prodigy. If if you are wonderful, I didn't, I knew, yeah. I knew about myself that I wasn't. Uh, so I had to, yeah, that exact moment of like, oh shit, what am I going to do? They're telling me I have to pick something. And now on the other side of it, 10 years later, oh my God, I know that that's not, it's not as hard and fast as all that, right? You don't have to necessarily pick one thing and stick to it. If you can, your yeah. life is so much easier, but life, you know, doesn't always work that way. No, 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 not at all. And like, even like, even for me, only five years out from it, it looking at it and going, shit, I was like a mess. <laughs> because 
I think the structure of school also really does not constitute to like what living in the real world or like the decisions you have to make in the real world are like. Because you've got this really strict timetable you've got to follow and you've got all of these, like for me, I ended up running the student representative council as well as, you know, playing in seven different bands and um, I was trombone player, very much in need. I'm guessing you as a viola player were also very much in need. Um, But, you know... and, and then, like, at some point, someone pulling me aside and going, you're going to have to choose a career. And I step back and I look at everything I'm doing. I'm like, none of this constitutes to some sort of degree <laughs> that I could go into. Like, can I just pick a degree that's, like, crazy busy studies and do whatever I want, please? Communications. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly, like, that's exactly no, what I chose. No, it's not. I accidentally landed in journalism. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Wild. Um. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was, because I, because the other thing is, like, music history is a big thing as well at the moment, everyone's trying Mm, to really uh catalogue music history, and there's a lot of lost records and bits and pieces we're having to, like, chumble together, and I remember getting a talk from a a musicologist um, who does a lot of that music history stuff, and she turned around and said, you know, I always thought I was going to be a professional musician, was never quite good enough, ended up going into musicology, and this was the best choice of, like, the combination of the fun I get from enjoying music, but also the academic and history and the love of knowledge. And for a hot second, I was like, what if I went into music history? Um, (laughs) There was a lot of things. It was like, what if I went into... um, what was it? Science communication at one point. Oh, sure. There was a lot. There was a lot of you know, like what ifs mm-hmm. through. It was a very tumultuous twelve months. I don't know how my parents came, coped with me. Yeah. God bless them. I suppose. I suppose they like it like that better than the current brother who's finishing high school. Who's like, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> no, I, I don't have any interests. I don't like any of my subjects. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that I think that's worse. But anyway. No, um, sorry, we've gone off on a really long tangent. <laughs> That's okay, I'm sure it'll work in somehow. Um, <laughs> I will definitely work in. Um, but, so, obviously, you know, you've had all of these very, very interesting experiences. Looking back on it all, and, and looking towards the future, what do you see in store? Like, what do you hope to see in store for yourself in the next little while yeah uh again a really good question that i do not know the answer to um i i'm just kind of riding this wave of knowing i i've built a community at this point of people who do like to have these conversations and i hope that that doesn't go away um i i do like being able to have my weird little hybrid mishmash of incomes and and livelihoods I I like that flexibility and I don't know if that's me as a person or living in like a post pandemic world where everything's hybrid Um, but I really enjoy the freedom and the flexibility there Um, and creating content I think is something that I've always enjoyed whether that was my art in high school or uh, writing essays and I love writing an essay writing essays in college Um, or like doing content now Um, because on top of the royal stuff, I actually have my own art history podcast that it's purely a passion project. I'm, I mean, I would mm. love it if it grew and my uh, network would probably also love it if it grew. But it, I started it thinking, I have a captive audience now. I'm going to write about art history once a month and I love it. It's just, it's fun. Yeah. And if you can marry your passions with an income, all the better. All the better. And even if you can't, like, doing your passions in your spare time. Like, I don't earn any money out of creating content and capable. Um, you know, I don't have a Patreon. I don't have, you know, way. I have ways I could monetize mm-hmm. this. But I haven't, I don't think, like, at least at this point, I don't feel like I'm at the point where I I can monetize mm-hmm. what I have. But being able to have converse, like, it scratches an itch, right, mm-hmm. that you have. Um, and I was talking to a friend about this. I've moved to a rural Australia uh, and we write local news and that's all we write. That's all we write. We don't do any federal or state politics, which I really enjoy. Um, we don't do any commentary on, you know, what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. We might talk about it in relation to how it impacts our local communities, but that's as far as we go. 
And so being, and the other thing is having long form conversations. And for me working and having worked in broadcast for three years, being able to do something that is broadcast adjacent as well, it just really scratches an itch that you just don't get to scratch Mm -hmm. in a day to day job that is often hyper specific to something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I mean, I, I know absolutely what you mean. And I don't know if it's, you know, out of a desire for a community or, just to feel, I think we were talking earlier about having this own little world where everything matters and also like it all doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like yeah. it's kind of a comforting thing to have. And it's uh, with our little black boxes that we stare into all the time, something that is kind of missing. Um, I totally get you. Yeah. yeah. it It's so much fun to create this stuff. Obviously there's an energy and, a, and time that goes mm-hmm. into creating any sort of content or meaningful contribution to society <laughs> or even non-meaningful contributions to society. Yeah. Someone's got to type that, that, that racist tweet, Ooh, um, <laughs> a manifesto, a narrative. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, I think that the, <laughs> I'm sorry, the conversations we get, no, no, <laughs> the conversations we get to have about, about, you know, whether it be the Royals or about following our passions or, you know, interacting with new people is so much fun. I really enjoy it. Um, and I suppose if there was like one piece of advice you had to someone who had a passion for something mm-hmm. that doesn't fit within the confines of something they feel like they can earn a living out mm-hmm. of, or, you know, what would you say to them? Um, I know it's cliche, but I would say just do it. Like you are your own worst enemy. Uh, The only person who's going to place those roadblocks. Oh my God. The only person who's going to place those roadblocks in front of you is like, it's yourself. You're like, I guarantee you no one else is out there sitting. Ugh. Like saying that Amanda, she, she can't do this one thing that she really wants to do. Mm -hmm. That would be, no, she can't do it. She can't pull it off. No one's doing that. Um, it's really just give it a try go for it if it doesn't work it doesn't work the stakes are rarely so high that failure will like destroy your life yeah yeah um well thank you so much for coming on content capable amanda it's been so much fun to chat to you um and to speak to someone who's got such an interesting perspective on content creation and how it interacts with your day-to-day life. It's been amazing. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, Where can people find you on the internet? Yes. So I am on both TikTok and Instagram as at Matta of Fact. So that's my last name, M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Um, And then my art history podcast that I also mentioned, it's really simple. It's Art of History. Um, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. So you can find that um, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, some of the other ones as well. And then I think that's it. (laughs) I don't want to be found anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) I think my one complaint about creating a podcast is the distribution is a pain in the butt. There's all these services that claim they can automatically distribute it. Uh, And uh, about nine months ago, I went back through just to check on everything, make sure nothing was broken. And I realized all these distribution platforms just did not have content capable on them because like there was like like, a manual process that needed to be done. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or I had to go and create an account with them to verify that it was an actual podcast, Mm -hmm. which just didn't make sense to me. And I go through like Spotify's podcasting, um, you know, distributor. And you'd think it'd all be automatic. Actually, the drama was always Apple Podcasts because it always takes forever. Sorry, uh, has there been anything that you have been listening to, reading, interacting with that you wanted to plug? Um, I mean, it's not so much a plug, just as much as it is if you are not, if you haven't seen this, what are you doing with your life? Um, I know like the Knives Out and Glass Onion bubble has taken over pop culture. Everyone's obsessed, murder mysteries, mm. whatnot, or if they're not, they should be. Um one of my favorite movies is a cult classic from 1985, Clue, like the board game. But that's kind of, uh, it's not where it all started, but that's like up until now, I think, where where Mystery Murders peaked. I just rewatched it recently, yeah. which is why it's on the top of my brain. But Tim Curry, <laughs> um, that guy from Back to the Future, Christopher Lloyd, uh, are like gold, 
completely gold in this movie. Yeah. Um, so if you're enjoying your murder mysteries, I would I would say check out Clue. Yeah, um, <laughs> I will. I will say something I learned the other day mm-hmm. uh, is that it's called the board game's called Cluedo here, yeah. and I was always gone. There's a game called Clue. No, no, no. Cluedo is the now game. It's Clue. <laughs> um, and and the movie's called Clue. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's worth it though. I, if you can get over the yeah. regional dialect, it's I. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, awesome. Well, you can find me at sam.the.journalist on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, you can find me at samobjournalist on Twitter. I'm not doing a huge amount on Twitter um, just because it's a little exhausting having to create content for seven platforms. Um, not that I don't think I create seven. Anyway, seven <laughs> platforms I don't think is the number, but whatever. Whatever. It's a it's an exaggeration. Um, I'm going to plug the movie Ponyo. Um, I am a huge Studio Ghibli fan. Um, I watched all the Studio... Well, a lot of the Studio Ghibli films in Japanese first, uh, with subtitles, because I studied Japanese in high school. And after an exam, the teacher would sit at the back, marking all the tests uh, in class, because you do three sets of tests. You do your reading, your writing, and your uh, listening test. And then they've got to mark three sets of 30 tests for each class. Mm -hmm. So they'd sit at the back while we would watch, you know, Ponyo and Spirited Away and bits and pieces. So definitely go and check out Ponyo if you haven't seen it. It's crazy. It's very Japanese. Um, The plot is just out there. All right. I will, uh, my partner will be very happy to hear that because he has been trying to, I think, get me to watch a lot of Japanese stuff. That's another conversation. It's on Netflix here in Australia. I don't know where it is in the States, but it's definitely on Netflix here in Australia, which has been really great. Um, uh, Studio, I don't know. Studio Ghibli's a bit of a a, a wild. You don't know where it, where it's going to end up in the streaming service yeah. playing field when they do their like monthly reshuffle. Which I, it's the the one that gets me all the time is Harry Potter switches streaming services oh, yeah. like it's going out of fashion. Yeah, um, it's great. Well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> thank you, Amanda, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, no, this was wonderful. Great conversation. Thank you. Content and Capable was recorded, edited, and produced by Samuel O'Brien. You can follow the podcast at Content, the letter N, Capable on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find it on Facebook. You can also send an email through to contentandcapablepod at gmail.com with any of your thoughts, queries, or concerns. The best way to support the podcast is to leave a review on your preferred podcatcher so more people can hear the podcast. The art was done by Opia, and the music was written, edited, and produced by Jason Hilton. Content and Capable is proud to be a part of the Deus Ex Media Network, where you can find a podcast for any of your nerdy interests. This season on Of the Eldest Gods, we make our way through the maze of... Labyrinth. Yeah, Labyrinth, whatever. And we tell you all about the next book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. And explain the context as we go along. So, the whole stuck in a maze thing is just a gimmick for this book, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, Ray. Uh, hey, 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 Charlie! Where the fuck are we? Only you can save us from the Labyrinth by listening to our podcast. Help! <laughs> Thank you for listening to Content and Capable. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next week for another episode. Dave X Media.